Welcome to Making the Most of Time with me, Elliot Apple. I'm a financial planner and caregiver. To give you a little background, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer when I was 25. Our world was changed instantly, and it's been a constant state of change ever since. Since then, I've been learning about the intersection of money, health, and loss, personally and professionally. This is a place to explore money, loss, and grief. It's about making the most of time, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, and financially. There are no taboo topics, no question is off limits. These conversations are for people like you, people who are about to lose a significant other, widows, caregivers, and anybody affected by a major health event. I'm glad you're here. So with that, let's start making the most of time. You're in for a real treat this week. On the podcast today, you'll hear a conversation Dr. David Roney and I had about his childhood, the challenges he faced growing up, navigating the healthcare system as a teenager to care for his mom, and a little bit about his brother, and the dedication he's applied to his career to become a general surgeon in the U.S. Navy. David's a very authentic human being. He speaks his mind and isn't afraid to talk about how messed up the financial and healthcare systems are. I very much enjoyed his openness, and be sure to listen to the end where David shares about a transformational act of kindness in his life. Without it, he wouldn't be where he is today. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. David Roney. Dr. David Roney, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Sweet. Thanks for having me, man. Of course. Um, for today, seeing with your background, I just I want to touch a little bit on sort of how you've gotten to this point, spend a little bit of time talking about healthcare since you are a healthcare professional, um, and sort of what people how people can make the most of their situation when they get into a healthcare situation and just see where the conversation takes us today, if that's okay. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Um, Well, I've listened to quite a few podcasts that you've been on recently and over the past year, and you have a really interesting and unique story. Um, And I would love to hear a little bit more about it. And for people who are listening, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Yeah. I mean, where would you like me to start? I mean, it's uh, a lot of stuff, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, I can start anywhere you want. Yeah. Why don't you start maybe a little bit about your childhood, going into med school, the transition um, that that entailed, and sort of from there, how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Um, So quick background. I'm I'm Dr. David Roney. I'm a general and robotic surgeon. I use the Da Vinci Intuitive Da Vinci platform to do robotic surgery. It's a passion of mine. I try and uh, uh, sit at the intersection of sort of the forefront of technology, medicine, and, and finance. And I also run a blog called uh, Surgify. It's a really like dumb name, but um, if I wouldn't have named it, I wouldn't have launched it, right? Um, so I, I have a unique background in the fact that I'm sort of atypical as a surgeon. I didn't come from means. I grew up very poor um, to a mom who, uh, quite frankly, even though we didn't have monetary wealth, she gave me a wealth of things that uh, you can never get back, right? Um, mm-hmm. She struggled with bipolar and uh, diabetes, and she died young at the age of 49, um, almost, let's see, 11 wow. years ago. And growing up, we sort of went wherever we could, uh, where my mom could find a job. So we struggled from living in homeless shelters to living in uh, a car at one point in Burger King for every meal to living on random strangers. We would go to oh, just find a church one weekend and my mom would befriend somebody. Next thing you know, my mom's in the hospital and me and my brother are living on the couch in some stranger's home. 
And we did that for a while, man. And uh, when I turned 16, uh, growing up out in California, we moved about probably about 30 times between uh, up and down California, sorry, everywhere. I'm originally from Hawaii, but grew up out there. And when I turned 16, my mom got sick for the final time where she could no longer function in society. Um, and that's when like everything changed for me. I had to like, I already had to grow up because we were, I grew up without a father. Um, but I really had to grow up there. Um, and from there I just sort of started to take care of things. I ended up missing a semester of high school, uh, because at the time my brother, uh, hadn't turned 18 yet and my mom got sick. And so like I went and put her in a hospital. I had to like forge some documents, whatever, and get her put in a hospital. And I couldn't let the school know that I was uh, sort of, my mom wasn't there and we were living at home by ourselves. And so I didn't show up to school a lot uh, in order to make sure my mom was good. And so I had to keep paying the bills, make sure everything's good. My brother was 17 at the time, roughly, and he wouldn't turn 18 for a couple months. And I knew that if the school found out, they're going to call child protective services. And basically I was going in a foster system, right? I was a junior in high school and I didn't want that to happen. And so I knew if I turned 18, my brother turned 18, then he theoretically could be my guardian. And so we, I had to make things look like that. That required me not going to school. So my junior year, I pretty much was not in school half the year. And I'm playing basketball. I'm getting pretty good at basketball, and I get noticed uh, by some schools, particularly the United States Naval Academy. And I was lucky enough that they offered for me to go play there. And one of the kickers, and then offering it to me, and they they really knew how to sell this to me, was they showed me <laughs> how much money I would make in four years after I graduated. And for me, that was a lot of money, right? Because we were poor yeah. as crap. My mom never made more than eighteen to 24,000 in a year. Like she didn't make a lot, right? She was working multiple mm -hmm. jobs, yada, yada. And so I was like, man, you know, I can really take care of my family. And so I ended up doing that. But my senior year, I had to uh, go to a school that allowed me to take junior year classes and senior year classes all at the same time. So I can graduate mm -hmm. on time. <laughs> and I luckily, uh, there was a school that was a private school and they, they really looked out for me and I was able to go there. I graduated on time. And then I was able uh, to get to the academy. Um, once I got to the academy, it was just hardship all over again. Um, my mom got mm. sick another time, and then she got evicted, and I lost everything again, right? So, like, all my clothes, anything I had was just gone. I had nothing to go back to. Uh, so then I'm starting over again, right? Um, and so my mom... Time goes by, I'm playing basketball at the academy, um, and I'm just going through the normal trials and tribulations there. Like, technically, I was homeless. I didn't have anywhere to go. Luckily, I had my sponsor family who would take me in, and then my teammates' family took me in eventually, and I would go and spend, well, pretty much all my free time with them and became part of their family, but I didn't have anywhere to go. Um, and I ended up doing okay at the Naval Academy. I never had to worry about failing the class or anything like that. And I was lucky enough to get into the United States Navy nuclear power program. And before I'm remiss, I, I, 
Nothing I say constitutes the opinion of the United States government. This is the story of uh, David Roney and no one else. None of my opinions reflect those of the government. But uh, I was managed to get in the Navy nuclear power program. Once I got in the Navy nuclear power program, I started to, that started to give me a little bit of confidence to go ahead and keep pushing academically. Um, but then I somehow ended up in cryptology from there uh, by a whim. And so the cryptology thing was interesting, right? Because I'm a kid from the hood that somehow is now doing cryptology, which is unheard of, right? And I got a degree in applied mathematics from the United States Naval Academy, unheard of again. So um, the, that was just like another stepping stone that I used. And then I got a little bit more confidence from there, right? And mm -hmm. over the course of time, what happened is I realized I wasn't, doing what I really wanted to do. And I was scared mm. to go to medical school. I was scared to even approach the, the, the potential of being a doctor, right? Because I was scared I was going to fail, right? Like failure, mm. when you grow up poor, failure is not really an option for you, right? So you have to sort of, you got to take risks, but you can't take that big of a risk, right? You can, you can mm. take a little jump, not a full leap, right? And going to medical school, in my opinion, was taking a leap. And uh, I, I, I did everything I could, man. I was taking GRE and studying for the, uh, the GMAT and um, looking at the LSAT, everything else to, other than going to medicine, <laughs> right? Because I was like, man, that's just going to be too hard. And I remember walking into, uh, I called my brother. Um, he's my old teammate. He's just like a brother to me. Walked in the house and his mom was in there. She's a uh, GI, OGI nurse, uh, gastrointestinal uh, nurse. And uh, I walked in. I was like, hey, you know, I think I'm just going to be a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. Right. And there's nothing wrong with those fields. But she was chopping some stuff. Right. And she's like, man, she, pulled, she looked at the knife. was like, if you don't go to medical school, I'll kill you myself. <laughs> And she was dead serious, right? She had the knife in her hand, a butcher knife. So I was just like, you know, maybe I need to do this. Um, and the first time I took the MCAT, I bombed it, man. Absolutely bombed it. Because hmm. I had never had trouble taking tests before. I had always been able to pass tests. And I didn't respect that test enough, right? And so then the next time around, I took a prep course and I really studied harder. And I managed to get my score up just a little bit, right? And I wasn't even going to apply through. I was like disappointed. Like, man, I study hard. This is a, I don't know what's going on. And my advisor from the Naval Academy was just like, you're going to get in. He's like, I know the score is low, but he's like, I have confidence you're going to get in. And so I was deployed at the time when I got my medical school interview. So I went ahead and applied. Then I had to apply and deploy at the same time, right? So I'm overseas wow. trying to manage all this stuff. And uh, I got one week to get off of my deployment, to leave my deployment, to go do all these medical school interviews. And just one week. Just one week, man. One week. And that's, for people who don't know, that's normally like a multi-week process, right? It is. So I'm calling schools frantically like, hey, if you're going to give me an interview, I got to do it in this time. The military's not budging. My job's very important. And I can't take a lot of time off because they won't have any backfill for me. So there's a couple schools that I thought were going to give me interviews and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, call back here. And then I never heard from them again. 
but there was one school, Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, shout out to KCOM. Uh, they gave me an interview and I scheduled everything around that, right? Mm-hmm. So I get back. My interview is on a uh, Thursday and then I'm flying back out the country the next day on Friday, right? Um, so I get a call that I think it was Thursday night or Friday night, one of the two. And uh, they're like, hey, um, do you know who this is? And it was, turns out it's like the uh, admissions director. And she was like, hey, we, we are so impressed with you. And uh, we're going to push your file through. And I just wanted to let you know um, you've been accepted to medical school. Right. So I interviewed on a Thursday, found out the next day. And she was like, uh, she's like, you don't have to tell me. Um, uh, are you going to accept? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to accept. I was like, I'll cancel any interview I get from now on, right? And so I started getting interviews after that for some pretty good schools. And I was like, nope, not going. I'm like, you guys didn't see my potential at first. So like, um, you you missed that opportunity. And so then I end up, again, a, a kid from Compton, California, ends up in Kirksville, Missouri, right? <laughs> Middle of nowhere, Missouri for med school. And I was lucky to go to medical school, medical school on the military's dime. And I did pretty well in medical school. And then I got selected to train 100% as a civilian because in the military, like you have to, you either go either or, right? Majority of people train in the military. Some people get to train outside. So I went and trained outside the military in general surgery. And then I came back to the military uh, to finish my career. Um, And that's basically how I got here. There was a lot of bumps in the road, right? So like over the course of time, my mom died my second year in medical school, right? And um, I didn't take any time off. I took a couple of days to go barrier and then kept rolling, right? Wow. Um, and that isn't good. It was just my normal personality, right? Just my response to adversity is to work harder, right? Which isn't a normal response. That's my coping mechanism. Hmm. And um, shortly thereafter, uh, well, shortly before my mom died, my aunt died. And then my uncle died a couple years later. And so like sooner or later, I had like no family left, just my brother and a couple uncles. And that was it. Right. Um, And so I went through a lot of adversity during that. Right. And the whole time I'm trying to teach myself financial literacy, because when I left at the age of 17 uh, home for good, I had zero financial literacy. I thought a check was the thing that you use to bounce to get money. That was it. Mm. Right. Um, Because that's what we had to do at times. Right. I was used to using food stamps and living paycheck to paycheck and never having money to buy anything. I remember being a freshman in high school, taking a tweed suitcase. Right. That I got from uh, a thrift store for like 50 cents uh, to school. Right. Actual suitcase I used to carry to school uh, to carry my books in. Right. As a freshman. Right. Imagine being a basketball player and you're carrying a tweed suitcase. So then like I I just had to learn to adapt over the course of time. I mean, I got to the Naval Academy and I didn't even know how to buy a pair of jeans. Right. Hmm. It's stuff that we take for granted. And so over the course of time, like I became more and more interested in finance because I was screwing up my money early on. And if it hadn't been for one of my coaches who was like a father figure to me, he just happened to be an advisor for Primerica. 
I would have never even realized I was screwing up my money. And then so I'm learning things at the Naval Academy and he's teaching me finance in the way that I need to learn and giving me little nuggets here. And I go back and learn something and it puts like the inkling in my ear. But he put me on a, a allotment when I was a um, sophomore at the Academy because I was messing my money up so much and I had all these credit cards and all this crazy stuff. And uh, that allotment, he invested in a Roth IRA for me. Now he invested in some funds and I'm, I had no idea what he was investing in, right? It was Primerica mutual funds. But the whole compound interest thing and the rule of 72 started, I'm like, oh, wow, this thing's growing. Mm. Like, I'm starting to get some <laughs> money, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so sooner or later, I just, I got that bug. And the only reason why I, be, I really took a deep dive into finance to circle back around on how I even got in this situation is I, uh, when I graduated the, from the Naval Academy, it was like, 2000, it was 2007, the financial great, uh, financial crisis was starting, yada, yada, and my money's going down. So I'm like, well, you know, when if the money's going down, that means I got to put more in. So I'm trying to put more in, and it's, it turns out the uh, funds are closed. So I'm trying to find out why the funds are closed. So I called Primerica asking questions, and the customer service agent or whoever they were was just like, you need to talk to your financial advisor. I was like, I don't have a financial advisor. My coach did all this, right? And she was like, well, you need to talk to him. And I was like, well, he doesn't work for you guys anymore. Well, and she's like, well, you need to get you a financial advisor. So I was like, okay, give me a financial advisor. And they said, I didn't, ha I, I didn't have enough to warrant getting a financial advisor. At that time, I think I had like close to like 50 grand like saved up in, in my account. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Like I, like I make this amount of money, which I thought I was rich at the time, right? And I have this much money saved. What do you mean I, I, I can't afford a financial advisor? And so it kind of pissed me off and put a chip on my shoulder. And I was like, okay, you know, fine. What does a financial advisor read? Right? Because I, I have a fresh degree from the United States Naval Academy that says <laughs> I can learn stuff. And I, I'm an applied math guy, right? And so I was like, yeah. well, what do they read? And, it's just, and the uh, person on the phone was just like, why don't you start with the prospectus from your mutual funds? So I dug out the those you know you used to the mailers that <laughs> it was really them. thick yeah and so i went through i went through them i was reading i took a i had to get a dictionary and look stuff up and and so i'm reading like well this it's just complete jargon right and i'm looking at these graphs and these and i'm calculating these figures to, to double check everything myself and from then on i just like you know what? i'm gonna learn this stuff as good as possible because nobody's ever going to tell me i don't i'm not worth it Right. No one's ever going to tell me that I don't have enough to, to warrant in services. And so from there, that was in 2007. Right. I, I slowly but surely just started reading as much as I could about finance. I was like, you know, what? I'm not going to be financially illiterate and I'm just going to keep working at this. And so fast forward, let's see, uh, 14 years later. Nope. Let's see. 13 years later, started a pandemic. Right. Um, I'm not operating because all my elective surgeries are essentially being put on hold because of COVID and mm -hmm. I'm watching people get laid off and get, um, like just starting GoFundMes to help pay for their, uh, account, like pay for their normal expenses. And, and I'm just like, man, I'm frustrated because I, I really, my natural ability or my natural inclination is to help others. And I had to sit back and watch this. I'm like, man, you know, how can I help 
the most amount of people. And so my brother was just like, man, he's like, you, you've accumulated all this knowledge in your head. It's like, why don't you just share that what you've already learned? It's like, just I put it, it somewhere. And I was like, well, you know, people might not read it. Like, how are they even going to find it? And he's like, you, you know, I'm just like, what, what's the, it's like, you, you're, you want to help people, but now you're making an excuse about they might not. And so he challenged me, like, look, just go put it all out there and see what the response you got. So I wrote all, every topic that I can speak from memory about, right? And it turned out to be a lot of topics, right, in finance. So then the next mm-hmm. thing I did is like, well, you know, I'm going to write five articles. And I, I suck at writing, right? So this was like a big exercise for me. I wrote five articles, and I was like, okay, I'm going to just put all these out there and see what people. And then I would get responses back, like, oh, yeah, we loved it. Thank you for talking about that. I do need to think about that. And so, like, that gave me a little bit of positive feedback to keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's how we essentially got here to where I am today, where I I just literally, I go learn a topic, and I try and digest it, and then put it out in a way that is not jargon-filled and just, like, normal conversation. And so that's the whole goal, like, the, uh, my blog was never intended to make money in any scenario. Um, and I, I just recently put ads on there just because I want to have enough revenue just to pay for the subscription every year, right? And the hosting. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's not a big deal for me to pay for the hosting. Um, but other than that, that's what I do, man. I give up my time freely to help others learn all these financial concepts. So you'll see me reading stuff and that is like probably trivial or elementary to a lot of people in finance. But all I'm doing is trying to get caught up to where everybody is. And so I'll spend hours at a time reading books that people have read before and coming to concepts so I can wrap my head around what you guys are looking at. Yeah. I love when people are blogging who aren't part of the industry because jargon is a huge, huge problem in the industry. And someone who can approach it from not not having as much of a financial background and isn't into it into the day to day. I think it, there's a lot to be held, held there that there's a lot of value for other folks who are reading that. And you have quite the following. Yeah, that's crazy. Ain't it? Um, that <laughs> I, I honestly thought like once I hit a thousand, I was like, okay, like I don't really care how many followers. And then all of a sudden I'm like, now I'm like over 4,000. I'm like, it's more impressive to my daughter. Right. So like, she she's in that TikTok range, right? Where she likes to look at TikTok, and so I go, "Look, I got four thousand followers on my blog." She's like, "Oh, that's so cool, right?" Um, but the reality is, I honestly, like I mentioned to you before, is I'm just me, and I just I'm just me the entire time. Like I don't know how to be anything else but me. So you won't catch me trying to demonstrate my intelligence to anybody because I don't feel like I need to do that, right? Um, I'm a hundred percent me all the time. So when I talk on Twitter, like you're just hearing me speak what's in my head. Um, Mm -hmm. and you may a hundred percent disagree with it and I'm fine with that. Tell me why I'm wrong. Right. But let's have an academic conversation about it because I'm reading, I can tell you which sources I'm reading and how I came to that conclusion. Can you tell me how you came to your conclusion? Is it based on data? Because that's what I'm using. And from the outside looking in, I go, you know, this doesn't make sense to me from a systems design standpoint. And I, I will say the same thing about medicine. Healthcare is completely messed up, right? 
And uh, that's the approach that I take, right? Because at the end of the day, like, guess what? Like, I've sort of proven that I can accomplish some stuff, right? Um, And I don't have anything left to prove to anyone but myself. So I'm just 100% me all the time. Yeah. David, you mentioned, you know, healthcare is really messed up, much like much of finance as well. I'd like to go back a little bit. Something piqued my interest as you were talking at the beginning of your story about how you'd check your mom into the hospital. You had to figure out how to sign forms. It, It sounded like there was a lot you had to figure out to sort of work within the system, if that's a fair way to sort of characterize it. How do you how do you figure that out at such a young age in such a complex system? Well, I mean, so because my mom was uh, sick and under care of a doctor for pretty much her entire life, um, I went to a lot of doctor's visits. And so what ended up happening is I absorbed a lot of information as an innocent bystander, right? So like hmm. making sure that she took the right medicine. So like I knew her medical history very, very well. And then I would just listen and I read and read and read about stuff. So then I learned like the rules and regulations of stuff. Because what you what ends up happening is if you can sit somewhere that is busy in a complex system and you just sit as an observer, you learn very quickly how that system works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned early on what it was to be, how to put like get someone admitted to the hospital, what forms are going to need because like there'd be times where my mom, I would have to fill the form out for her and then she'd have to sign stuff. And so like over time I just learned, but the system is completely jacked up. Right. Um, if you're a 16 year old kid who happens to function at the level of adult, well, adults won't pay attention to you because you're a kid. Right. Um, but if you're the one clearly coherently telling someone's medical history, you would think they would listen, but that's not what happens in our system. Think about, um, when, if you're going into finance and the bank teller who, which is an entry level position is telling you about, is pitching you a stock idea. You're going to be like, ah, well, what do you know? Right. And we do that all the time. Yeah instead of actually listening to people, right? Because not everyone's on the same spectrum of their learning curve, right? Some people are a little bit more accelerated. Some people put in extra work to get higher on the curve, but we don't tend to listen to everyone. And that's what happens in healthcare is the system's so complex that we have all these little preconceived notions of how things should be that we don't tend to pay attention to what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. It sounds really challenging growing up. I'm I'm curious for people who are listening and having been in the role now as a general surgeon, how how do patients and their families, how do they get messages across that are important? Like what advice would you give them? The easiest the the best visits are when a husband and wife comes in, right? And either like because the patient doesn't want to disclose everything to you. Mm-hmm. And the reason <laughs> that, it's just like finance in that regard, right? One person's not going to, the person of concern who you're interviewing, evaluating, examining, they may not disclose everything to you because they may be embarrassed about some of it, right? Or it's a topic yeah. that they really aren't comfortable talking about. And so they may talk around it. 
But what happens with the person who is the innocent bystander but cares about whoever's in there, they just cut right through it and be like, nope, I don't agree with that. This is what happens. And so it's good for that to occur because most people, it's a protection mechanism that they have. It's defensive to protect themselves of, of, hey, you know, maybe something might actually be wrong. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. But the other person doesn't have any skin in the game, so they can tell the truth, right? And so you can get both sides. You can really understand. Plus, it helps that patient out to really hear what's been going on because they might not have had that self-observation of how often it's occurring. Yeah, great advice. I, I find it's always interesting to watch the other person speak up in those sort of medical appointments and see what gets revealed that exactly. <laughs> the patient isn't willing to share. Exactly. Um, how, when you were growing up between you and your brother, it, it sounds like a lot of the sort of role of an adult fell on you. How, how did you two split duties growing up when it came to the healthcare system or anything else? Man, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm the youngest of us and I like for a lot of stuff, I was like the parent and then he would parent me for certain stuff. Uh, I was more outgoing than he was like he was very introverted so a lot of the things like we sort of traded off parenting for some stuff right Um, I've always been like the more fearless person so like a lot of the the more dangerous aspects of things always fell to me Um, but that's really just how it it was like parenting by committee we just sort of parented each other hey this is the my advice on this. this is how I would handle this and he'd tell me the same I don't agree with that this is what I would do Okay. Makes sense. Um, and you mentioned earlier sort of just powering on and working and that's sort of your, one of your coping mechanisms, knowing what you know now, if you lost your mom again, what would you have done differently at this point? Go to therapy and I would stop. I'll probably take a month, two months off from school and go to therapy. Um, without a doubt. I mean, I, the, the reality is, is Everyone deals with grief in a different way, right? But if you don't mm-hmm. address it and you don't actually take the time to do the work and actually work your, through all the emotions, right? Because I had a complex relationship with my mom. It wasn't the typical uh, mother-son relationship. So like working through that and getting through that anger, getting through the sadness and actually understanding the root of everything would have been extremely helpful in order to proceed so that you don't carry any of that trauma on. Right. Uh, And it took time. I mean, I I don't care how high functioning you are. Like we, sometimes we, uh, we put these labels on mental health and the stigma and mental health, right. People don't like to talk about it. And I do my best to openly talk about these things, right. Because we need to remove that. Right. Because we all face times when we're depressed we all face times when we have anxiety we all face times of uncertainty and we we all go through things and it's okay for us to go through them so knowing what i know now i would have been a better patient and said hey you know what take time off grieve properly and then come back to it well said right now with you working in medicine are there things that you tell patients that you find particularly helpful? Are there certain things that after a surgery that you want to make sure you cover with them that really has an impact going forward on their recovery? Yeah. You know, I tell them upfront, 
uh, one thing I tell them is I don't give opioid pain medicine, right? Uh, I don't prescribe them. I refuse to. Um, and if I do, uh, it's in an as-needed basis, very low amount. Because of the fact that I, I want to work, I, I go through the mechanisms of how pain is actually occurring in your body, right? Hmm. So once I do that, I say, hey, you know what? I'm giving you this medicine which is a non-sedating medicine because it works for this mechanism or this medicine for this mechanism, this medicine for this mechanism. And I go through the same spiel every single time. I also tell them like, hey, you know, take it easy after surgery. The first couple of days, because you got a lot of pain medicine, some anesthetic, you might feel great. You're not really doing that well. I mean, it's surgery, right? And then slowly ease yourself back into it. But you don't have to feel like you have to jump right back in your routine. It's okay to take time off. And the thing up front is telling them like, hey, you know, you have X, Y, and Z diagnosis. And just know this is going to hurt. There, I can't do, there's no such thing as painless surgery. There's no such thing as scarless surgery. So just knowing those things up front and having coming to that realization that you might be in some pain out, uh, afterwards sort of helps you with your recovery. Hmm. How how does pain work in the body? When you're explaining that to a patient, what's the what's the quick spiel? I, I'm curious myself. Well, I mean, the quick spiel is you have uh, the factors such as uh, and like anything associated with inflammation, right? So um, inflammation, uh, the key of like healing from surgery, right? You're, there's a whole cycle of what has to occur in order to heal that wound. Well, part of that cycle is you got to cut through some nerves, you got to cut through skin, you got to sometimes you got to cut through muscle, and each one of those layers have different effects, right? So, like if you want to get to the anti inflammatory mechanism, then you need to talk about using one medicine. Uh, Or if you're like, hey, you know, these nerves, because they've been irritated, they're going to be more active. So, we want to tone down the reactivity of these particular nerves. So, let's tone that down. And then this medicine has been shown in concert with this anti-inflammatory medicine to provide better pain control. So let's give you that. Um, And that's usually whatever the post-operative pain sort of schedule is. David, I read somewhere that you wanted to be a hospital CEO one day. Does that still stand true? Yeah. So I still have a goal of being a hospital CEO. Um, I I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but if it does... My whole goal is to affect change of a hospital system and really have a positive impact right, on the community around it. Um, healthcare is a complex entity in the fact that if you look at the service lines, they're all essentially separate businesses that are trying to function under one umbrella. And because of that, um, there's so many different policies and procedures that might be competing in interest, right? Um, for instance, the operating room is a competing service line with maybe what the anesthesia department wants to run, right? So now you're trying to mix a bunch of small little CEOs of their, um, these different small little complex systems underneath one giant umbrella, and it, it isn't a hundred percent seamless. Hmm. What, what would you change about that? Man, uh, I can write a dissertation on what I would change. I mean, uh, part of the issue is the way uh, 
it's a it's kind of hard to vertically integrate in a in healthcare, and the reason why is they um, the U.S. and the way policy is written, you don't want self dealing, right? So like if I'm a physician and I want to start my own hospital, well, I can't go take call at another hospital and then refer to myself, right? Like they don't want those types of things going on. However, certain hospital systems get away with a little bit of that. And the way they do it is they buy up a lot of practices in the area and they call it part of the system. And then they'll also, as a, as a adjunct, they'll start their own insurance plan right? Which gives, which is basically just paying them again. And then that insurance plan will be like for patients and and they'll have one specifically for a malpractice insurance company that takes care of the employed physicians and the nurses. And then they'll buy up the the ad, like the post-hospital stay um, component as well and run that as a separate company. But it's all one giant company that's all feeding. And so like those things are very it's very devious, right? Because mm-hmm. that's why you end up with these crazy bills because when you start to have that big of a system, it has to feed into a bottom line somewhere. I really think that the way hospitals should ideally work is that the entire stay from or the entire experience as a patient should be cost contained, right? So like your care in the pre-hospital environment in the preventative state should be tied to your care in the hospital as well as tied to your post-operative care. So you shouldn't get a bill for your surgery and then a bill for your um, rehab stay, right? I think they need to be tied as like a bundle. Um, I think in doing that, if you can package that as a bundle, the incentive is that you'll get rid of a lot of the inefficiencies and the added bloat, right? In order to make sure that one, you're paying everybody, the patient's not getting charged too much, and then that you really are getting down to the nitty gritty of the things that you really need to run efficiently, right? So if in the pre-hospital environment, you diagnose a patient, let's just say with uh, biliary colic, meaning their gallbladder has stones in it and they have right upper quadrant pain and the surgeon recommends that they need to go to the operating room, well, the payment is tied to that diagnosis, and it carries that clinic visit, the surgery, and the, the post-operative recovery, right? So whatever 90-day period, it's a, that whole spectrum of things is covered underneath that. Now, if the patient deviates to the left or right, meaning they had a complication and it's no fault of their own or they had a compli- unexpected complication in the post-operative state, like that's when the added bills and stuff like that can come on. But for the 80% that just streamlined straightforward, that that should all be one charge, right? So like, it, and you should be able to do that with pretty much every disease process, right? Because we know people who are diabetic are going to end up with certain problems and there should be like a full spectrum of that that takes place. The other little thing is I would love to be like associated with some type of insurance company because I think they do things completely wrong, right? Um, I think 
in reality, the way insurance, and I, I honestly think it's the most legal Ponzi scheme there is, right? Because <laughs> the, the reality is, is every insurance, the goal of it is to not pay out a claim. Like they don't, like they have an incentive to not pay out the claim, right? Yep. That's why Warren Buffett loves insurance companies because they have a bunch of what he, what he calls float, right? Mm-hmm. All this cash sitting around from all the premiums constantly wrapping up, right? And so that cash gets invested, yada, yada. What I think needs to occur is that insurance companies, if they truly want to operate that model, need to pay more to develop systems that are more preventative, right? They have a, they should have an incentive to make a preventative healthcare system, right? Because if they can keep people healthier, there's no reason to pay out a claim. Like, but they don't do that right now. They have no incentive to change. Healthcare is a multi-billion dollar business, right? Like hundreds of billions of dollars. And so there's no incentive to change a system that large, right? It don't fix, like you can't fix something according to what other people that they don't see as broke. And the only reason they don't see it as broke is because it's bringing in so much money. Yeah. It's really frustrating both as someone who is a purchaser of that, as someone who's connected to the healthcare industry. It just is frustrating to watch. What what do you think are ways that people can go about to affect change? I mean, it, it's hard to change a multi-billion dollar industry, but are there certain steps that everyday people can do? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like it, it's a lot of stuff that we talk about in preventative uh, maintenance and preventative care. It's really simple, man, like exercise, eat healthy, drink water, um, and just try and go to go to your preventative checkups. Like a lot of people don't even go for an annual checkup to the doctor. Now, though, a lot of sometimes the annual checkup is a bunch of nonsense, right? They barely like examine you. But preventative health is like that's pretty much eighty percent of the issue, right? Um, is people don't keep up with their preventative health. Like, hey, are you going to get your teeth cleaned every six months? Hey, are you going for an annual dentist checkup? Hey, you're 45 and you need a colonoscopy. Have you shown up to it? Hey, you're 40 and you need a mammogram. Did you go to it? Like those are just simple things that people don't want to do, right? They find a reason to say, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. And another thing is that like we need to get rid of all these separate little insurances. Hey, here's vision insurance. Here's health, like dental insurance. Here's your insurance for um, your health and your health insurance. But guess what? You don't have maternity insurance. Like, like these things, like it, it should all just be one insurance payment as opposed to this sort of parsing out and splintered issue that we have um, because that just eats away at people's finances, man. Yeah, it would sure make things much simpler. And I think a lot of people would track that much easier. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So David, I want to wrap up with a question um, that I want to end every podcast with. But before we go there, is there anything else that you want to make sure people know? Or um, I know you mentioned how people can find you. But if you want to do that again, I'd welcome that. Yeah, so people can find me on Twitter at FISURGI, F-I-S-U-R-G-I. Only reason why it's not certified is because someone's been sitting on that handle for at least 10 years and they're not active and they won't give me the handle, but whatever. Uh, so that's that. I don't hang out on anywhere else pretty much. I have pages on other platforms, but I like interacting on Twitter. As Twitter's like a guilty pleasure of mine to talk to everybody on there. Or you can go to my blog, uh, S-U-R-G-I, 
fi.com. I also have a YouTube page. Um, the YouTube page is going to be more active probably in my blog, and I'll probably just share stuff from there from the YouTube page because I people tend to respond to me doing video more than they respond to me doing uh, my writing because I suck at writing personally. I don't. I hate writing. I don't think I'm a great writer. So I'm pretty good in video from what I, I'm told. So I'll just lean into that. Great. Thanks for sharing. Um, and then the question I want to end on is what is one act of kindness in your life that's been pretty transformational that someone's been that someone has done for you? Um, it goes back to high school, man. I I was struggling with the weight of trying to take care of my mom, keep that a secret and uh, I was bouncing around from couch to couch and uh, sometimes living at home by myself. And I'm a 17 year old kid by, by myself in the not so great neighborhood. And um, I was getting recruited by the Naval Academy and I'm trying to get everything taken care of. I had an okay SAT score at first. And the Naval Academy was like, hey, you know, uh, we really need you to raise this by X amount of points, right? And I knew the component of the SAT that I struggled with was the verbal component. And I had no intentions prior to take that test again. But then I had to raise my score and I had no idea how I was going to raise it because I had a pretty high math component score already. And I broke down crying. And um, it was just after English class one day and a young teacher by the name of Margaret Shook um, gave me a hug and was like, what is going on? And I, I just told her, I literally just told her everything I was going through. And I was just like, I can't take this stress anymore. And I just told her everything. And she was just like, how can I help? I was like, look, I really need somebody to tutor me and I, I can't afford it. And she just tutored me for free in the essay, like for the verbal component of SATs. And I went back and I took it and I blew the score I needed out of the water. And that was the biggest, at the time, that was one of the biggest acts of kindness that I remember that will forever live with me because it changed the, the direction. Like, if I didn't get that score, I wouldn't have went to the Naval Academy. I wouldn't even be here right now. Hmm. Wow. That is, that is a very kind and generous act. Yeah. She didn't have to give up her time, but she did. Yeah. I'm glad she did. I'm glad we were able to have this conversation today, and I really appreciate you joining me. Yeah, thanks for the invite, man. Elliot Apple is an investment advisor representative of Kindness Financial Planning, LLC. However, in hosting this podcast, Elliot is not acting as an investment advisor representative individually or on behalf of Kindness Financial Planning. The information and opinions in this podcast are for general, informational, and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment, financial, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication, and such opinions are subject to change. No representation is made as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Any past performance referenced is historical and no guarantee of future results. All indices referenced are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. All investments involve a certain level of risk. You should carefully consider if an investment is suitable for you before making an investment. Please consult your legal, financial, and other professionals to determine what may be appropriate for you.